Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. How many of you like second chances? A couple of you do. That's good. I, I don't. I mean, I think they're, you know, outdated, outmoded. Oh, don't give me a second chance. Knock me off at the knees if you can, all right? That'd be great. Oh, that's really way too high, isn't it? I'm sorry. It's usually set. I don't know how it got moved there. Oh, that feels good right there. Sorry. This will be cut out of the edited version online. So, all right. Um, Second chances. If you had life to do over again, those of you who are older, maybe my age and older, if you, had, if you could start and do over again, <coughs> what would you do? What would it look like? What would you do differently? What would you do the same? Is there anything you would change? Oh, my. <laughs> Did you say you'd marry differently? <laughs> oh, I'm just... I'm just kidding. I, I want you to know how much I love you, and I, I offended you last week, and uh, I'm just teasing. I have to try harder. All right, no. I just heard a laugh. I had to play into it. All right. Irma Bombeck. How many of you are familiar with the name of Irma Bombeck? Some of you younger ones probably aren't aware of Irma Bombeck. She wrote some books, and she wrote articles and, and columns and newspapers. In an article written by her entitled, Off the Potter's Wheel, If I Had My Life to Live Over Again, she writes this. Someone asked me the other day, if I had my life to live over again, would I change anything? No, I answered. But then I began to think. If I had my life to live over, I would have talked less and listened more. That's the story of my life. I don't know how to shut this thing up. You're like, yeah, we know. She says, I would have invited friends over for dinner, even if the carpet was stained and the sofa faded. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble on about his youth. I would have burned the pink candle sculpted like a rose before it melted in storage. I would have sat on the lawn with my children and not worried about grass stains. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by my husband. I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of pretending the earth would go into a holding pattern if I weren't there for the day. I would have cried and laughed less while watching TV and more while watching life. I would never have bought anything just because it was practical, wouldn't show soil, or was guaranteed to last for a lifetime. You just can't pass up this deal. you got to have it. How many of those things sit in your garage, in your attic, or in storage somewhere? Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy, I would have cherished every moment and realized that the wonderment growing inside of me was my only chance in life to assist God in a miracle. I would have eaten popcorn in the good living room and worried less about the dirt when someone wanted to light a fire in the fireplace. When my child kissed me impetuously, 
I would have never said, later, now go get washed up for dinner. There would have been more I love yous, more I'm sorry's, but mostly, given another shot at life, I would seize every minute, look at it and really see it, live it and never give it back. If you were given 24 hours to live, how would you live the next 24 hours? Would you live it differently than you're currently living life? Or would you do the same exact routines you do every day? Let's just say you were given a week, a month. See, we don't know how much time we've been given. That's the thing with life in a fallen world. It's fickle. We aren't guaranteed the next moment in life, much less the next 20 30, 40, 50 years. How do you live life now? I've been in ministry for 24 years, and one of the biggest regrets I hear from people my age and older, and I'm encroaching on 50, is I wish I had done fill in the blank. I wish I had tried fill in the blank. I wish I hadn't have fill in the blank. Life is full of regrets, and rightly so, because we live in a fallen world and none of us are perfect, but that doesn't give us liberty to go on living as normal. That's why Jesus came into the world, to give us new life. But the sad reality is, especially in our churches, in our culture, we live as if there's going to be a million tomorrows and we'll get to things that are important later. We're closing on our series on Daniel today as we've looked at the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And we've looked at the Jewish men who were placed in positions of authority in his royal court. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We come to the last chapter where, da where Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in the book of Daniel. It's toward the end of his reign, more than likely. He still had several years left, but it was more toward the latter part of that. And Daniel, being the dream interpreter, was called upon again by Nebuchadnezzar, who had another dream. This dream, however, would not only frighten Nebuchadnezzar, it would confound it and confuse him. Again, it was a dream with a ton of symbolism in it. There's a dream of a tree, a huge and mighty tree, the biggest tree you've ever seen. It, it grew so tall it crested the skies. It was wide and expansive, and animals and, and creatures of all different types lived in its branches. But in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw it get cut down at the lowest point and was left a stump, but yet it was chained together as a stump. And he's wondering what all of this meant. But he said, after a while in the dream, the stump began to grow forth new life. What did all this mean? So who's he going to go to? Of course, he goes to Daniel. And Daniel is stunned, silent. He doesn't know what to say because he 
knows what the dream means, and yet he knows the one he's speaking to, it actually refers to him. But this time, he isn't the head of gold, the mightiest of all kings and rulers. Instead, he is the tree. And what happens to the tree in the dream? It gets cut down. Here's the story. Daniel 4, verse 19. Then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, wait a minute, I thought it was Daniel. Well, actually, Daniel actually kept in his book, he wrote the book, he, he kept his Jewish name, Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also Babylonian names. They had Jewish names. You go all the way back to Daniel 1 and 2, you'll read their Jewish names. I'm not going to pronounce them for you here. You can do that on your own. But Daniel's Babylonian name was Belteshazzar. So the king said to him, Belteshazzar, Daniel, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. And he also went on to say, I wish, or actually Daniel said, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth the known world of their day. And then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what that dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society, and you will live in the fields of the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please Please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Daniel's given another interpretation of the dream. The dream is for Nebuchadnezzar, and the dream is about Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. And his downfall is, directly result, is a direct result of his sinful nature. Because you see, Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had been humbled by God several other times prior to this that we can read about in the book of Daniel, had not learned a lesson yet. 
He hadn't learned a lesson. The first dream we were given is this statue made of multiple different types of metal. And the bottom part, the feet, were made of clay and iron. And then there was a rock cut from a mountain, but not by human hands, that comes and strikes the statue. And it goes into dust, all of it. And the winds come and blow it away, but this rock becomes a mighty mountain that actually takes over the whole earth. And that rock is representative of a king whose kingdom will never end. It will be a kingdom of peace. We talked about that. Nebuchadnezzar put that in the back of his mind, I'm sure. (laughs) I'm the greatest. I'm guessing that's what he heard. You, your king, are the head of gold. You are the greatest and most powerful. The ones that come after you will be lesser and less. Even though they might take over more territory and lands, you, my king, are the greatest in this statue. What would you hear if somebody came to you, gave you that story, what would stick out most to you in the story? I'm the greatest. (laughs) I am the best. The ones that come after me, they're going to be destroyed, but I'm good. (laughs) I don't know if that's what he was thinking, but I know sinful human nature is that we are selective in our hearing. Trust me, I know, because when I preach, some of you only hear certain things, and then you misconstrue what you think you hear. (laughs) Just saying. 20-some years of ministry, like, did you hear Brandon said? And I'm like, I didn't. Okay, let's look at the context, shall we? But see, we do this with Scripture, we do it with God's Word, we do it with all different types of things. We only hear what we want to hear, or we're only selective in our hearing. And I think what happened with Nebuchadnezzar is that he didn't learn from these dreams that God was giving him, that Daniel was interpreting for him, that God is the main ruler of all heaven and earth. Oh, I'm the greatest. <laughs> I don't think he took into consideration the main point of that story or that dream was the rock cut from the mountain that would dash all kings and kingdoms the world has ever known. And that it is God who allows people of authority to be in power, nations to rise and to fall. That's a different subject for a different time because I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, because there have been some really corrupt leaders the world has known. We'll talk about that some other time. Put your brakes on. The second one we talked about was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember? There was another statue. So Nebuchadnezzar takes this statue imagery, and he's like, well, I'm going to build the golden statue. I was the head of gold. I'm just speculating on this. We aren't told that. But think about he was the head of gold in the first dream, and now he's building a statue that's 90 feet tall out of pure gold. As a, as a symbol of his greatness. Not the greatness that God has allowed him to have, but it's a symbol of his greatness. We don't know what image that statue was in. It could have been actually his image. We aren't told that. But everybody in the kingdom in Babylon were required by royal edict to bow down and worship the statue. When the trumpet sounds, all of you within an earshot must bow down and worship the statue. 
Or if you like VeggieTales, it's the bunny. Sorry. Some of you have watched it, know what I'm talking about. And I hear the song in my head right now. So this statue was built by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't know where Daniel is in the story, but I'm sure he didn't bow down either. But see, these three were under close watch of some people that didn't like them who were also in the royal court. And they're like, oh, these guys, we know they're not going to do it. And, and they're Jewish men. We don't like them anyway, so we're going to trick the king into putting this edict into place to execute anybody that won't bow down and worship the statue at the trumpet sound. And so when that happens, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not bow down. And the tattletales go to Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, king, they won't bow to your statue. <laughs> I just get this image in my mind. Tattletales come in all shapes, sizes, and ages. And so they run and tell the king that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do this. The king flies into a rage. It says his face is so distorted with rage. Have you ever seen somebody's face like that? And he has them come in front of him. Is this true? You won't do this. I'll give you one last chance. <laughs> He's given them a second chance when God has already given him chances. King, whether it's right in your eyes for us to bow down to the statue or not is really up to you. But as for us, I mean, God's able to rescue us from the fires, but we're not going to bow down and worship your statue even if he doesn't. And they're thrown in. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled because he sticks around to see the execution, to watch them, and he notices four guys, not three, walking around in the fire. And he calls them to come out of the fire, but only three come out. And then he gives praise and glory to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who is the greatest God, he says. And now the tree imagery. You see, what's happening in between these narratives in Daniel is that, is that Nebuchadnezzar's continuing to burn sacrifices, human and otherwise, to the gods of Marduk, Baal, and other polytheistic, other gods of the polytheistic tradition of his day. See, he's like, okay, Yahweh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, he's one of the gods in all of these other gods, and he's proven himself, but I still got my own set of gods, and I'm going to do whatever I want to and live however I want to. I will burn, burn whatever sacrifices I want to, human or otherwise, to these gods. I will oppress the poor. Look, I've earned my place in history and also in God's history, obviously, because Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and all of them have shown me that their God is, is still also a God, and he's not struck, struck me down yet. So I guess I'm still pretty good in his sight. So I'm going to continue to do what I do. But see, Nebuchadnezzar thinks it's all about him. And God wants Nebuchadnezzar, God, Yahweh, wants Nebuchadnezzar to learn. It's not about you, never has been and never will be. I'm using you. I used you as a tool of judgment against my own people. But it's not about you. It's always been about me, Nebuchadnezzar. And until you learn that, 
It's going to not go well for you. See, the reality is there's some of us that haven't learned that lesson either. It's about me and what I want and what I don't get. What makes me mad? How many of you you can agree with that? How many of you get ticked off at somebody else because they're not doing for you what you think they should? Right? Thank you. Here's the point. Yahweh, and the reason I'm using the word Yahweh here is because I'm preaching from a book in the Old Testament where there are multiple gods referenced. And I'm not saying gods as in they truly exist, but gods in the sense of demonic entities and rulers of this dark world that some emperors and rulers, even in our day and age, continue to worship. You see, our nation used to believe that there was only one God. I don't want to get on a tirade on this, but the reality is our country has lost its soul because it's forgotten its God. And our God is Yahweh, the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible. And we wonder why things are in such chaos. Don't for a minute think that judgment can't come from an outside force. If it did in Daniel's day, it could come in ours too. And it could come from some of the most unlikely of sources. Yahweh gives us multiple chances to do the right thing. Aren't you glad that we worship a God who doesn't strike us down when we mess up just once? Aren't you glad that it's not just strike one and you're out? (laughs) And it's more than three strikes we get. See, God is patient, long-suffering. If you read the Old Testament, you, you realize that because there are centuries upon centuries that pass before God finally decides, enough! And he pours out his judgment. And he pours out his wrath. But see, we, we don't read it between the lines. that Oh, centuries lapse between this chapter and this chapter of the Bible. So we think it's instantaneous that God's up there with the nightstick waiting to pound us over the head or really wreak havoc on us when we mess up once. What he's trying to do with Nebuchadnezzar is saying, listen, I've allowed you to be a tool of my judgment toward my people, and now for decades at this point, you've continued to live in prosperity, You've, you've continued to have power and authority, and it's only because I've allowed you to have it. And the reality is, I want you to worship me alone. I want you to know that your power, your authority, and everything you are is because of me. I'm the one who knit you together, Nebuchadnezzar, in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, but you are stubborn. And you need to know that I am God and that I love you, but sometimes it's going to take me getting through to you in a way that only you can hear and understand. I'm going to have to cut you down because there's no other warning that you'll listen to. So the first thing we want to talk about really quickly is true greatness only comes from God. (sighs) Have you ever felt confident in who you are? And you should. There's there's, this... hmm. Let me be careful how I state this. Self-esteem, I don't like. And the reason I don't like self-esteem is because it's a secular tool that came up around the 60s and 70s. And it was all about the self. Do you see what the culture does? The secular culture likes to make the focus onto 
Who? So, and it's subtle. We, we, we would never go around telling everybody, you're horrible and you're messed up, even though sometimes we have, I'm sure. No, the right thing to do is to be gentle and loving and never say anything that would hurt somebody's feelings. And, and you know, because we're worried too much about the self, how we will be reflected in that instance, and how their focus might be shifted. What would happen, though, if we took a biblical perspective on things rather than a secular psychological perspective on things and said it's not about self or self-esteem or self-confidence. It's all about God through Christ who brings salvation to men and women who don't deserve it. You see, the best place to start would feeling a sense of confidence to enter the throne room of grace is through Christ. Because it's all about him and never about us. What would happen in our churches and in our culture if our churches truly lived, not the pop psychology way, but the biblical way? What if we truly realized that when we are great, it's only because he is greater? And that he has allowed us any sense of greatness in this world because we are fully submitted to him rather than being fully submitted to us. I'm telling you, it's hard. I haven't achieved it. As Paul would say, I haven't attained it yet. So I'm preaching to me as much as I am to you. Because I can get all puffed up too and say, oh, pastor, that was a great show. Oh, you hit square. Or somebody else in the community, wow, you're doing such a great job. And the church seems to be doing, oh, yes, it is. Mm, come on, bring it on. But then there's these subtle reminders of this still small voice that says, it's not about you. <laughs> it is about him. It's all about him. And when I get in the way by taking the glory that people are giving, instead of reflecting it back to God, I miss the mark. I take the greatness that only God truly deserves because it's him who's allowed me to be in a place to, where, to get any kind of encouragement or accolades. When I start to get puffed up or encouraged in a way that is unhealthy, I'm not saying you shouldn't encourage people. Please don't mishear me. Encourage others and be encouraged, but don't take the encouragement to the place in your own mind to say, yeah, I am, mm-hmm. Yeah, baby. I am that good. Because that's where our minds in a sinful way tends to go. Yeah, I'm good. God must be blessing me. Look at all I'm getting. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Mm. Right? And we start to equate our blessings with this prosperity theology nonsense that is not from God but from the enemy because if you're doing well, then obviously you're doing something right in God's blessing. Everything I read in the Gospels is about you're going to be persecuted. You follow me, you're going to be hated. I'm not saying God doesn't bless you and doesn't give you gifts and prosperity. I'm not saying that at all. There are times we read in the Scripture that he does. But to say that if I'm doing right, then I'm being blessed monetarily and otherwise is a false teaching that the Scripture does not promote. 
Jesus says, you're going to be hated when you follow me. If you truly are surrendered to me, living your life for me, and making disciples for me, people are not going to like that. The world is going to hate it because that means they're losing. You're gaining ground, they're losing it. And when that happens, this territorial thing happens in the spiritual realm. And the enemy will use whatever tactics he needs to in the spiritual realm to knock us down. It's called persecution. And it comes in many forms and many ways. True greatness only comes from God. There was a young, awkward boy who grew up in Southern California plagued by a learning disability that would years later be called dyslexia. But with his mother's encouragement and admonishment, he became a strong and capable leader. Years later, he was commanding thousands of American troops in war when General George Patton, often referred to as, I hate this, old blood and guts, found himself in North Africa grappling with the German army. His thoughts on the battlefield were of his mother. It was his mother, he often told colleagues, who ingrained in him the leadership qualities that he was to become famous for. His only regret was that he never expressed sufficient appreciation to her. His greatness that he had attained in military prowess and became famous for during World War II, he dedicated to his mother and only wished he could have told her more. He didn't take the greatness of those successes and pat himself on the back and strut his stuff. He said, I wish I could tell my mom. To whom does your greatness belong? The one who is the greatest the world has ever known. And it's not Muhammad Ali. <laughs> True greatness always requires humility. Okay? Humility. See, that's really where we learn truly who we are and the problems that we have that need to be fixed. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's only when we are humble that we learn who we really are and what we have in our life that truly needs to be fixed. It's when you're prideful that you're blinded to anything of the sort. John Mark Comer, in his book, God Has a Name, writes this, What we think about God matters. Who God is, is has profound implications for who we are. Here's the problem. We usually end up with a God that looks an awful lot like us. As the saying goes, God created man in his own image, and man being a gentleman returned the favor. There is a human desire or bent in all of us to make God into our image. We oftentimes assume what God would do, what he would say, how he would react in a situation, and yet we don't have the basis for any knowledge of that because we're not into his word enough to know how God truly relates to humanity time and time and time again. You see, this God of all heaven and earth, of all creation, is the one who humbled himself, Philippians 2, became a servant, became the least 
in order to show us the true nature of God. It says that Jesus, who was God, didn't see equality with God as something to cling to. You've maybe heard me say this before. It's like he could have walked around saying, hey, guys, look at me. I'm God. You can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. He could have done that. He could have zapped everybody that was doing him wrong, right? But he didn't. It says he became obedient. He became a slave to the flesh of a body. The God of all creation became a slave to this encapsulated shell that we oftentimes feel aches and pains from. And that as the years go by, withers and fades, and we wonder where the strength of our youth went. He enslaved himself into a human shell and showed us truly how to live life as a human, but also showed us truly the nature of the God of heaven. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus himself, a part of that Godhead, didn't see equality with the Trinity as something to cling to. That God who became Emmanuel, God with us, was humble enough to not strut around telling everybody he's God, even though he claimed it multiple times in the New Testament in a way that was humble. He didn't raise a fist toward anybody. Oh, you're saying, Brandon, he threw over money tables and drove out the merchants and money changers in the temple courts with a whip. Okay. One time of controlled anger because the situation allowed it. But a lifetime of peace and using words to change hearts, and using miracles to change lives, and pointing everybody to the kingdom of God, which is the citizenry which we were created for. True greatness always requires humility. And lastly, for some people, life lessons can only be learned the hard way. I was going to come to this, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but it's true. How many of you have had, how many of you are the type of people that have to learn things the hard way? <laughs> you got to experience, you need to experience the beating before you're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> you're one of those that, you know, spankings didn't work for. <laughs> we have a kid like that. Some of them you, get a, you give a mean look to, and then go, ah! And others, you're like, come on. Oh, yeah, bring it on, mama or dada. Some of us are the bring it on type with regard to God. And we throw caution to the wind, and we, we give in to every whip and whim and temptation because we believe that we're above all of that stuff. I'm my own person. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I, I'm the one who's in charge and in control. How long does it take a person to truly 
understand that they're not the one that's in control? Well, it depends. There are some that learn very quickly and others that don't learn for a very long time. The ones that don't learn for a very long time are glutton for punishment because they get knocked down over and over and over and over and over again because of their pride. Oh, yeah, well, I'll show them. I'll show him. I'll show. Instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, oftentimes we're the I'm going to show them mentality person. When God, I mean, <laughs> sometimes we might find ourselves fighting against God rather than against men, and that is an unwinnable fight. Do you understand me? Hello? Are you there? Do you have, okay. Sometimes we find ourselves fighting against God rather than against man or other situations. In those with the gift of discernment who have humbled themselves enough to know who God is and what his voice sounds like, realize when they're fighting against God and when they're fighting against men. And when you fight against men, you still lose. Because we weren't created to fight against each other, but rather powers, principalities, rulers of this dark world. And that battle is not fought with the weapons of the world, but the weapons of the kingdom of God. The armor of God is in Ephesians 6. When stubbornness and pride take hold of a person, they are not easily convinced when they're the ones in the wrong. Do you believe that? When somebody is stubborn and prideful, they are the ones that are not easily convinced when they are in the wrong. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? You know, they are blatantly wrong. Everybody else knows they're blatantly wrong, but you're trying to speak some sense into them, but because of stubbornness and pride, they're like, "Mm mm-mm, you're the one that's wrong. You see, this is why Jesus remained silent before his accusers. Before Pilate, he spoke to Pilate, but just with a few words. Why did Jesus remain silent before those who had arrested him and accused him and those who would ultimately put him to death? It's because he knew they were too stubborn and too prideful to listen to reason and to hear the actual voice of God being spoken to them. Be careful you're not fighting against God. Be careful that you might have to learn the hard way what real truth is. Nebuchadnezzar had assumed his great success was not only a result of his might and prowess, but also his pagan gods blessing upon him. It's amazing how much sin and how much selfishness a person can justify when things are going in their favor. Let me say that again. It's amazing how much sin a person can say is okay and justified when everything's going their way. But let there be no mistaking, everyone, even kings and queens of vast empires, will stand and account for what they've been entrusted by Yahweh. Did they lord over and abuse those under their leadership and power, or did they benevolently work to help those downcast and burdened by life and circumstances outside of their control get to their feet and focus on the king of kings? J. 
John Goldengay suggests, if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't change and God does act in judgment, it would seem likely to follow that Nebuchadnezzar will be disciplined until he has learned his lesson and has changed. The warning about judgment pointed in another direction. God had announced that it would be terrible and long-lasting, but not fatal or permanent. Do you hear that? He's telling Nebuchadnezzar through the dream, it's going to be pretty rough. You're going to eat grass like a cow. I'm sorry, the image of that just tickles me. I don't want to be the grass eater, but... That's what he's telling me. Listen, it's going to be bad. And it's going to be for seven periods of time. We don't really know what that is. Some people say seven years. We don't know what seven periods of time is. It could have been seven full moons. Who knows? Scholars debate this. For whatever reason, that seven periods of time is a complete cycle of something. Seven meaning complete in the Old Testament. So for a complete amount of time and a longer amount of time, you're going to be eating grass like cows and living outside. And everything you have will be stripped from you. But you're not going to die. Golden Gate continues, while punishment sometimes changes people, the Bible assumes that mercy and grace do a better job. Nebuchadnezzar is restored because God decides that enough is enough. He's put under judgment until he learns to acknowledge Yahweh. But it's the fact that Yahweh brings the judgment to an end that leads to his making that acknowledgement. God doesn't punish people willy-nilly. I don't want you to get the picture of God that he's up there, "Mm -hmm, I'm going to strike you down, I'm going to make you do this, and I'm going to make you do that. And he's up there with his arms crossed and and his stance like this, just looking to strike you dead. Or to punish you to the point of saying, mercy, mercy, mercy. You know what he wants to do? His desire in all of this and even in other rulers of the Old Testament, New Testament, and even in our day and age? He wants us, sometimes he knows the only way he can get through to us is the hard way. Sometimes he knows it's going to be backbreaking for you to be able to clear away the crap in your life to be able to see me. I wish I could do it another way, but you're leaving me no choice. Nebuchadnezzar, this is the way you're going to have to learn. You're going to have to have everything taken from you. You're going to have to be humbled to the point where you are away from the rest of society and eating grass with the rest of the animals before you'll wake up to the reality of who I am. And I don't want to hurt you. I want you to see me for who I really am. Somebody who loves you. And before it's too late, I want to give you a chance before you die to receive me and to believe in me alone. And here's the rest of the story. Verse 28. But all these things did happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was talking and walking on the flat roof of the royal palace of Babylon. As he looked across the whole city of Babylon, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence. 
display my, my majestic splendor. Do you catch what he's saying there? Has he learned anything yet? As this 12 months later, the freshness of the dream has now slipped past him. He has forgotten what he had once known as interpreted through Daniel what the dream was about. And while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, that judgment was fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. And he was drenched with the dew of heaven. That's basically saying he lived outside. You know how the morning dew rests on the grass and on your car when you wake up in the morning? He wasn't in any shelter. He was out in the wide open. He ate grass like a cow. And he was drenched with the dew of heaven. And he lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Ugh, get that picture. <laughs> After this time had passed, listen to what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. After the seven periods of time had passed, it's like he came to his senses. We are never told he was driven insane, that he lost his mind, we were just told that he was driven into the wilderness to eat grass, which was his only sustenance, and to live in the wide open. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised him. He was somewhat insane, I guess. And I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule, listen to this, his rule is everlasting, his kingdom eternal. All people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. And no one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. He said, my advisors and nobles sought me out. And I was restored as the head of my kingdom with even greater honor than I had before. Sometimes in order to receive that which you desire, you have to be humble enough to receive it. Now, listen to this last phrase. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. As a close, let me ask you this. How many chances do you need to do the right thing? How many chances do you need to do the right thing and to make Yahweh the Lord of your life? Because some of you are living with half foot in and half foot out. And honestly, if you've got half foot out, you're out. You're either all in or you're all out. 
Jesus doesn't just take half of you. Is, is God truly your king through Jesus Christ? Is he the king of kings and the Lord of lords of your life? Again, I'm going to ask you, if you had 24 hours to live, would you live it for you or would you live it for him? Would you do things that are of worth and significance today that you've been putting off? If you'd been given a limited time? As our worship team comes forward to close us out today, I, I don't know where you are, but I know that we live in a community and a culture that is prone to indifference and apathy. Do you know why we are indifferent and apathetic in our culture? Because we become way too comfortable. I think what COVID did for us in shutting things down and making things go awry and then adding all of this other crap to it, which makes inflation go up and all that. We, I'm not talking politics here, but some of us have slightly become uncomfortable. Haven't we? We don't like the prices of things. We but see, compared to the rest of the world, we're still pretty good. Are we like Nebuchadnezzar, ones that have to be humbled to have everything stripped from us? I think God's given us a few little warnings here and there. He's like, you need to get off your high horse. Church, <laughs> you need to realize that I am who I say I am, and the only authority, power, or glory that you have is from me. As a nation, the only power or authority your nation has is what I've allowed it to have for these some 250 years. Then what are you going to do with what I've given you? Because you think it maybe is because of your might, your power, your authority that you've achieved anything. It's this idea that we are our own self-made people. And to some extent that might be partially true, but the reality is there is a God who is ruler over everything. And there is a God to whom we will stand in front of someday and to give account for the life that we have. Bless you. There is a God who loves you more than anything else. And he doesn't want to have to put things on you to the point to where you have to buckle under the weight before you truly see who he really is. He wants you to willingly come to him. Did you catch what... What Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar in that first warning at the interpretation of the dream, King, please stop sinning. Do the right things. Maybe you will continue to prosper. See, the reality is there's a possibility that before punishment comes, there could be a chance to do something different so you can avoid punishment. It's like you, you that have children all right, and I do this with, we've done this with the kids. Our kids are getting quite a bit too old to punish at this point, other than saying, you stop it. But here's the thing. If I tell my kids, I'm gonna punish you if you do that, I know the punishment for them is imminent, and they know it's imminent if I tell them it's gonna happen if they do that thing. But if they don't do that thing, Guess what happens? There's no punishment. How many times do we read in Scripture, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this? 
And yet we're like, I don't think he's serious. And we don't say that, but we live like that, right? Oh, I don't think he really means don't do this. I don't think he really means do. It's figurative. That's what it is. And so we justify behavior. Until we realize, oh, shoot, he really meant that. And sometimes we don't learn that he really meant that until we are at the bottom of ourselves and the bottom of society, eating grass like a cow and being wet by the dew of heaven. Oh, that we would learn way before that to be humbled enough to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of our life and to live in humility under his leadership, to obey what he's commanded us to, and to live the way he's called us to live. Not because he's a mean ogre demanding things from us, but because he was willing to come to us and give us a get-out-of-jail-free card with his own death. Or shall I say get-out-of-hell-free card. All you have to do is believe in me, and you can have eternal life. But see, that belief is an active belief. It's not, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and you're going to go do your own thing. It's, I believe in Jesus, and now I'm going to follow him for the rest of my days. I'm going to do what he said to do and not do what he said not to do. I'm begging you, (laughs) as I do every week, if there is any way in you that is stubborn and prideful, that is not in alignment with God's best for you and for his kingdom and his glory, get it fixed now. Stop doing what you shouldn't do and start doing what you know you should have always been doing to begin with. Live a life of freedom that can only come through him because the world wants nothing more than to keep you in bondage to its will and its ways. And sometimes it looks good and fun until you realize you've come to the end of not only yourself, but the the bottom of everything. There's a hand that's always reaching out. And it's not mine. And it's not yours. It's God's. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am meek and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden, the one that I give you, it's light. Stop fighting against me. Let me fight with you and for you. Surrender your life to me. I will make you clean and new. Our prayer team's going to come forward and to pray with you. And they'll be on my right, your left. If you want to pray alone, come to my left, your right. But please don't leave. Don't leave your living rooms, your cars. Pull over if you need to. And pray, Lord, have, have your own way. Give me all of you and surrender for all of me. Father, we love you, and we do trust you. I know sometimes it's hard. I mean, we we wrestle with doubts way too often. And as you ask your own disciples, why do you doubt? I'm sure you ask us today, why do you doubt? Why do you keep living and doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different result? When I've showed you the way, 
I've showed you truth and I've given you life. Father, forgive us where we fought against you. Give us the strength to surrender, to let down our guard for you, to be surrendered to you in the way that only, that only we can with anybody so that you can impart to us grace, truth, mercy, and forgiveness. Make us into new creations today. Help us to shed all of the old so that none of it remains. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.